So hopefully you've been here the last several times that I've spoke um, and are familiar with where we are in Acts. In, in case you, you haven't been or you need a refresher course, I'm going to back up just a little bit and give you kind of a high-level overview of kind of where we are at as it, it pertains to our story of the recovery tonight. So Paul has returned from his third missionary journey, and he has, uh, is in Jerusalem. And there's some people there that are stirring up the crowd against them. They're, and they, they, they'd say some lies about them. And there's a mob. And they, they go to kill him at one point. And the, centur- the, the centurion in, in Jerusalem pulls him out. And he arrests him. And in a sense, he does save his life. And the day after um, he is uh, 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 arrested, <clears throat> excuse me, the day after he's arrested, the Lord comes and visits him in jail. And uh, uh, look at Acts chapter 23, 23 verse 11 tonight because it will play in just a little bit. And it says that the following night, the Lord stood before him, him being Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. So just keep that in mind. It will be important to what we're covering tonight. And so um, there's a plot to kill Paul um, while he's he's in in custody. And so the centurion sends him off to the governor uh, who lives in Caesarea, a man by the name of Felix. We talked about him last time I spoke, if you were here. And we talked about how he was indecisive. We talked about how he had enough information most likely to make a decision on the case, but he procrastinated making a decision on the case for Paul. We also later find out um, that he is also a greedy person, saying that he, he, was, he, was, he was waiting for Paul to bribe him before he let him out of jail. And so because Paul didn't uh, lower himself to that, to that point, he spent two years in prison. Now Felix is eventually replaced by a, name, by a man by the name of Festus, the new governor. And Festus, uh, the primary people that he is governing are, are um, people from Israel. And so he's wanting to curry favor with, with the Jewish people. And so he's uh, thinking about releasing Paul back to them because they're asking for him to be released to them. So he's thinking about releasing them back to him in order um, to curry favor with them. But Paul knows that if he is released back to them, that it would be a death sentence for him. And so he, he invokes his right, because he was not only a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. So he, in, he invokes his right that he had to appeal to Caesar, to appeal his case to the highest court in the land, to have it heard uh, by Caesar himself, the emperor. And so at this point, um, Festus really doesn't have any choice but to send Paul to Rome. So it would be, it would be like today if, if we have a court case here locally and, and we have a, a court case here in Arkansas and we don't like how it turns out. We would appeal that case um, to the appellate court. And if we didn't like how that turned out, we could appeal it up to the highest court in the land of the United States, which would be the Supreme Court. And at some point, if, if they accept your case, you'll be given a court date. And whenever that court date came, you would have to travel to Washington, D.C. to represent your case. And so in the same way, Paul is having to travel to Rome in order to have his case heard. And so that's what Acts chapter 27 and 28, or first part of 28, is about. It's about Paul's voyage to Rome. For the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapter and a half to you, um, but, but that, uh, I'm just going to give it to you as homework this week to go back and read it. Uh, but we will talk through some of the verses just so we have the context of what's going on when we get to the part that I really want to dig into. So in chapter 27, in verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul is handed over to a centurion by the name of Julius to escort him to Rome. And uh, one thing that we'll notice here is that the pronoun changes. It it changes from uh, Paul went and did this, he went and did this, to we went and did this. The importance of that is it shows us that, um, uh, that the author of the book of Acts, who is Luke, 
um, is traveling with them. So Paul is traveling with some traveling companions. Uh, it also explicitly misses, mentions a person by the name of um, Aristarchus. Um, he's mentioned two other times in the New Testament. Uh, once in the book of Philemon, uh, verse 24, he calls him his fellow worker. And again in uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, where, where Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. So we're not really sure whether he's traveling at this point as a prisoner or back to Rome, or whether he's just um, traveling as, as a friend as like Lucas, just bought passage on the same ship. But regardless of the reason, Paul is not traveling alone. He's traveling with friends. In verse 3, we see that, that they left um, Caesarea on a ship uh, best, uh, destined for um, Asia Minor, a, a city by the name of Myra. And so the, the, they left uh, Caesarea and they head north about 69 miles to a city named Sidon. And at this point, Julius looks favorably on uh, Paul. He lets him get off the ship and be ministered to by the other Christians. So not a bad start to the trip. In the same way, if we were traveling to the Supreme Court, we would probably take some friends with us. We would probably take some traveling companions with us, just like Paul did. And just like Paul, we would probably, uh, we could potentially have a good start to our trip. We may be book air some airfare, we get to the airport on time, we get to TSA in record time, and our flight leaves on time, and maybe we're connecting through Dallas-Fort Worth. So we get to DFW, and we're not only on time, but we're early. And so like Paul, we would be traveling to the highest court in the land. We would be traveling with friends. And so far, so good, we are, are, we're, we're traveling on schedule. In verses uh, 4 and 5, um, it says that they, um, uh, that, that they had to travel around an island named Cyprus. And throw a map up here for you to look at. So um, it's kind of hard to see. I apologize for that. But where the red line starts is uh, Caesarea. If you go up the coast a little bit, there's another dot there that is Sidon. And they're destined for um, Myra, which is up in Asia Minor, where the line changes from red to green on that picture. And so what he's saying here is that instead of just taking the shortest distance, so the straight line between the two and kind of doing a diagonal, it says that the winds were against them. So they had to take the long way around. So instead of uh, taking the shortest route, they had to take the long way around. And taking the long way around, they were able to take, uh, take effect of the, the, the coastal effect of the winds. So obviously this is taking a lot more time and it's putting them further, starting to put them behind schedule as they arrive in Myra. And so at this point, it's probably, from, based on what we know, it's probably late fall. And uh, we'll get into this a little bit more here in a bit, but the, the Mediterranean Sea is not a place you want to be in the winter. Storms come up out of the blue, and they're vicious storms. And so they're racing the clock to get to Rome before winter sets in. So in the same way, if you're with your friends and you're at DFW, and, and due to some weather, you find out that your, 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 your direct flight from DFW into Washington, D.C. is canceled, but they say, don't worry, we found a way to route you around. We can send you over to Atlanta, and then there's a flight from Atlanta going up to Washington, D.C. That can still get you there in plenty of time. And so they go ahead and they send you off to Atlanta instead of going directly there. So like Paul, you're not taking the most direct route, and you're having to take the long way around, and you're ending up getting further behind schedule. In verse 6, uh, it says the centurion uh, books some travel on another ship, an Alexandria ship. Um, and that's where the, the line changes color up there on the map. So they're getting on a new ship. And the Alexandria ships are primarily cargo ships. Um, they're primarily used to transport grain back to, the, uh, back to Rome, back to Italy. And in verse 7 and 8, it says that they struggle for, for several days 
uh, trying to get to a city known as uh, uh, Nidus, which is about 100 miles away. So I don't have a great picture of it here, but um, if, you, if, if I left it zoomed out a little bit, if you looked at Myra and you went directly west on the map, you would end up at a boot-shaped peninsula, which most of us probably recognize as Italy. And if you went up the west side of Italy, you would quickly get to Rome. Uh, so, what they're, so they're trying to sail directly west, and they're about where that line starts to take a southwest course. It's, it's saying that it took them about, it took them many days to make that, and it's about 100 miles in there. So it should have easily taken a day, day and a half, but it's saying it took several days for them to get there. So they're falling even be further behind uh, schedule. And the winds are not favorable, and it gets to the point where they can't continue any longer, and so they, they, they give in to the wind, and they start heading in a southwest course. And they travel down to an island known as Crete. And when they get around to the south side of Crete, the, the island itself actually blocks the wind and allows them to make a westerly course. It still says it's with much difficulty, but they are able to continue on with their westerly course. And they, and they make port in a, in, a, in, a, in a city called Fairhaven. So potentially in the same way, if, you know, if, if, you, if, if, if you're in Atlanta and you find out that your direct flight from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. just got canceled because they said the weather is going to be bad by the time your flight gets there. And so you check around some other airlines and you find out that there's this other airline that, that, that still says that they're on schedule, but it connects through Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And so you, you go ahead and get a refund for that leg of the journey you're not going to use on your old ticket. And you book new passage and... and uh, you book new passage, uh, but things are slow going. The flight's delayed a few times due to weather. You finally get into the air, and you get to Charlotte, and you circle for about 20 minutes until the weather breaks, and you're able to land. And so like Paul, you had to change vessels along the way. The weather has slowed you down, and now you're getting even further and further behind schedule. But Paul's delays, they, they cost him a lot more time than this because fall has now come to an end, and it's now winter. And the seas are just not safe to travel in the winter. From about uh, November 10th to about March 10th was this kind of the rule of thumb that they used for as, 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 as a, the window of time that you just didn't want to be out on the Mediterranean Sea during this time. And so let's pick up in verse 9. And it said, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be of much injury and loss not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. So Paul here, he's, a, he's an experienced sailor. We know from, from the scriptures that he's at least um, had uh, six sea voyages at this point, probably many more that aren't recorded in the scripture. And so out of his, his, his experience, he's saying it's not safe to travel after the fast. And the fast he's referring to is known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement which that year would have fallen in late October. So it's, it's past the, late, uh, the Day of Atonement in late October, and it's now early November. And so he's saying that out of his experience, it's not safe to travel. We also know from 2 Corinthians 11.25 that he s says that he was shipwrecked three times in his lifetime. So he's becoming something of an expert in shipwrecks, not something probably to be, uh, to, to be uh, uh, fond of. So out of his own wisdom, he's saying that they shouldn't continue. But for whatever reason, the centurion decides to proceed. And we see that in verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than he did to what Paul said. And, you know, most of us probably know where the story is going because we've heard it before. And so it's really easy for us to be hard on the centurion and say, why didn't he just listen to Paul? But I think maybe we need to give him a little bit of a break here because 
he trusted experienced sailors, sailors that sail this, this water all the time. He trusted the owner of the ship. He trusted the person who, if the cargo was lost, um, that, that would be responsible for it. And there was no insurance back then. And so maybe the, the, the sailors or the owners, maybe they're calling Paul name like, oh, he's just a doomsaying prisoner. Or perhaps he's just a, trying to get out of his inevitable execution. But I do think Luke is going for a little bit of irony here in pointing out that, that a, a mere passenger knew more than the entire crew of the ship and the owner. Let's look at verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, both facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And so Phoenix is a city a mere 60 miles up the coast. So if you leave Fair Havens and you travel along the edge of the, of the land, you would end up in Phoenix about 60 miles up the, up the coast. If you're able to go out over open seas, it's about 40 miles across the water. And um, uh, Phoenix is, is, it would have better housing for them and have better food for them, better entertainment since they're going to be stuck there for three months. And so um, they, they probably reason that, hey, it's only 60 miles away. What could possibly go wrong in 60 miles? So perhaps in a similar way, if, if, if you, your airplane makes it to Charlotte and the pilot of the, the airlines and the, the airlines are looking at the um, weather conditions, trying to decide if they should continue on to Washington, D.C. And you pull out your handy-dandy, your smartphone, you pull out the radar on there, and you say, ooh, it's just not going to be safe. They should really cancel this trip. But is the airline really going to listen to you? Or are they going to trust the people that forecast the weather for them all the time? Are they going to trust the pilots who fly that leg of the trip all the time over a person that's just a passenger that's armed with a cell phone? And so per perhaps the crew had, uh, had some uh, bad motivations too. Maybe they said there's better hotels, better food in Washington, D.C. Perhaps the, f the pilot had family back there and he wanted to get back. So perhaps uh, slightly for an error in judgment, perhaps their judgment was slightly clouded. But in the same way, the, a passenger maybe would have the wisdom to say they shouldn't continue, but a majority of them are wanting to continue on. So Paul knew that the winter was already upon them, but no one was listening to him. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. Can you just hear the centurion at this point talking to Paul saying, hey, see, I told you there was nothing to worry about. It's only 60 miles away. I told you it would be fine. And perhaps his famous last words were, hey, we'll be there by sundown. Nothing to worry about. And then in 14, but soon, a t uh, a but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And that the word tempestuous is an interesting word. In, in the Greek, it's, it's uh, typhunicus. And you might say, oh, that kind of sounds familiar. And it should. It has the same uh, Latin um, uh, root word that we get the word typhoon from today, which is a hurricane in, in the Pacific Ocean. So these were not just you know, a slight gust of wind. These were hurricane force winds that are blowing against their ship. And so in verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face into the wind, they gave way and were driven along. And so they tried to head into the wind as long as they possibly could. But at some point it gets unbearable to them and they have to let go of the rudder, the rudder and let the wind blow them where it may. 
And in 16 and 17, um, they, they find a cover of a small island. It's, it's an itty-bitty speck up on the map. You can't really even see it. Um, and and for, for a few brief moments, they're able to try to secure the ship. And so they pull in the ship's, uh, the ship's boat. It's kind of like a life raft that they would use to row into the, into the port whenever they, uh, whenever, they made, whenever they came into a port, row into land. So they pull that up on board and they strap that down. It says that they undergirded the ship. So they ran ropes underneath the ship and they, and they tied them as tight as they can, literally tying the boat together so that it would not be broken apart. And it says that they're worried about this place called Sardis. And Sardis is a place of legends back then. It's known to be full of, of many uh, low-lying sandbars. And it's, it's also, uh, legend, uh, legend has it at least that there's quicksand in there, and that even some boats that would enter that area would literally disappear and were never seen again. And it's thought that quicksand got them and swallowed the whole, whole boat. And the, so they're worried about that. And so it says that they, um, that they lowered the gear. And this is fairly nondescript, so we don't know for sure what it means, but most scholars would say that it's some combination of lowering the mainsail and dropping a floating anchor from the stern. You might say, why a floating anchor? Well, a floating anchor helps uh, the, the counterbalance the boat and helps whenever they crest over a wave, it helps pull the boat back to balance quicker, and so it makes for a smoother ride in a storm. And so verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, the next, uh, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And so it's day two of a nonstop storm. And they start throwing out the cargo. And it really makes us harken back to verse 10 where Paul says, Sir, I perceive that this voyage will be a much injury and loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. And we say, oh, well, there goes the cargo part of that. What about the rest? And so in verse 19, it says, On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So three, third day of nonstop storm. And, and they start throwing the tackle overboard with their own hands. And it kind of makes you think, that's kind of part of the ship. Maybe that's part of what Paul's talking about. And so in verse 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid upon us, all hope of us being saved was at last abandoned. And so back then, they, were, they used the sun and the stars in order to navigate. And since they hadn't been able to see them for many days now, it says, they have no idea where they're at. They are lost at sea. They don't even really know what direction they're heading in. All they really know is a nonstop seasickness. And so at this point, they've, they've abandoned all hope of being saved. Their very lives are in danger, just as Paul had predicted. And for the first time in the story, we might find ourselves asking, will Paul really make it to Rome? I mean, I know God said he would, but that was before the storm. That was before the constant pounding of the waves against the, sh the, the ship. That was before we had to throw out the cargo and the tackle, and, uh, and, and we were lost at sea. It's really starting to look like in the story that Paul might actually just die at sea. So in the same way, you may be, maybe we're in Charlotte and, and the weather forecasters uh, see the wind changes directions and they say, oh, this is our small window to make the flight. And so they quickly board the, 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 the airplane, you take off and everything's going great. Pilot even comes on and says, hey guys, we're making great time. We're going to be there before you know it. And perhaps those were his famous last words. Because <clears throat> just then the winds changed direction. And about an hour later, everyone realizes they've been circling over D.C. for almost an hour. So what would you do at the moment you realized you were just circling there? 
Would you worry that you wouldn't make it? Would you pray and ask God if you would make it? Would you pray and say, well, wait a minute, God. I was, you told me I was going to make it to, to D.C. Like and, and defend this case like I did back in Arkansas. Why are you making this trip so hard? But let's take a look at what Paul's response was in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and this loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only that of the ship. And in, and in verses 23 to 26, he goes on to tell the story of how an angel has visited him and told that he must go to Rome and, and testify and that, that God has spared the lives of those on the ship, but they must run aground on some island. They must be shipwrecked on some island. So here they are. They're, they're on a ship, wave crashing against the hole, and no clue where they're at. And this prisoner stands up and says, hey, guys, don't worry. Everything is going to be okay but we're going to lose the ship. I'm not sure how entirely comforting that would have been to them. I mean, sure, we're all going to be safe if the sky's right, but we are going to lose the ship. How's that going to work out for us? It might be like if you were circling over Washington, D.C., and you prayed to God, and he tells you that, hey, everything's going to be all right. I'm going to spare the lives of everybody on this airplane, but you're going to lose the plane. And you think to yourself, oh, boy, what am I going to do with this information? Because really, you would have the same choice that Paul had. You could just sit back and be like, oh, great. Everything's going to be great. I'm just going to sit back and wait for the storm to pass. Or you can use the information and try to encourage the people on the plane. Now, obviously, we're paralleling Paul's story, so we're going to take the second option. But I hope you can see the courage that it would take to stand up on the plane and to do something like Paul has done here. When it would have been a whole lot easier just to sit back and wait for the storm to pass. And so you, um, so you stand up on the plane, you tell everyone that, 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 that we're going to make it to D.C., that, everything, uh, and that everybody's going to make it, everybody's going to be okay, and they're encouraged. But then you have to slide in that last part, too, about, hey, but we're going to lose the plane. And all of a sudden, that encouragement is met with fear and questions. And so after Paul gives his speech <clears throat> about th- that they're going to be shipwrecked, they immediately find land, right? No, not at all. Let's look at the first part of verse 27. When 14 nights had come, so they have to wait 14 nights in order to find this land. And so you can imagine as they, they sit there and this it's a continual storm and the storm continues day after day after day. And it's 14 days of the storm nonstop at this point. And as they sit there, they have to be starting to lose hope. Did this guy really know what he's talking about? He said we're going to run aground, but all we have is this continued storm day after day after day. But then somebody yells down from, from, from the top side of the ship and says that they think they hear land. You see, there's a very distinct noise of, of waves crashing against rocks, and it echoes across the water, and it can be heard from miles away. And so that's the sound they think they're hearing. So they think they're approaching land. And so they take, in verse 28, they take these soundings. So they tie a weight on a rope. They drop it in the water. And the first time, they pull it back up, and it's about 120 feet to the bottom. They wait a little bit, and they do it again, and it's 90 feet to the bottom. So, yep, the water's getting shallower. Yep, the noise is still there the, of, the, of, the, of the, the water and the waves hitting the rocks. So it definitely appears like they're approaching a coastline. And probably people are starting to think, what if Paul's right? What if the ship will be destroyed? 
Are we really all going to make it to shore safely? Let's look at verse 29. And f- <clears throat> in fear that we might run, might run on the rocks, th- in fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they were full of fear. And so they dropped these anchors and they were, they were praying that the anchors would hold until daylight through the storm. And, 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 and so that these fear and these what ifs, they, they, they leave everybody on the ship, even the pagans, praying for daylight to come. Let's look at verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. But Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, we cannot be saved. And so the sailors were, they were full of fear. They, they were full of fear. They let their fear get the best of them. And so the sailors are trying to sneak off the ship. They think that they have a better chance of getting to shore in, in, in the rowboat than they do in the ship the next day. But Paul knew, but Paul knew that that inexperienced sailor, that inex, pardon me, inexperienced soldiers and prisoners stood little chance of being able to make it to shore by themselves. And that they really needed that experience of the sailors in order to make it to shore. It would be like in our story of the circling Washington, D.C., if the pilots were to say somehow, some way, they had parachutes and they had a way to jump out. Hey, we're going to go ahead and, and, and parachute down to the ground and we're going to let the passengers in the plane and the flight crew land the plane. Sure, maybe someone on the plane has a little bit of flight experience, but are they really experienced on this particular airplane and know anything about flying it and be able to, they would obviously stand a far better chance of making it to ground safe if the pilot stayed on the board, stayed on board. And so in the same way, the, the, the ship stands a far better chance of making it to shore if these sailors stay on board. And so again, we might find ourselves asking, would the centurion listen to Paul? What if he didn't? What if, what if they got away? Would Paul make it to, to the shore? Would, would they make it to land all right? Would Paul make it to Rome? Let's look at verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes, uh, cut away the rope of the ship's boat and let it go. And with that, the soldiers sealed their fate. You see, they couldn't pull up close to the island anymore and use the boat to ferry people off a boatload at a time. The boat was gone. Now the only way to get everybody to shore was to run the ship aground, just like Paul has said they would have to. But it leaves you questioning, would Paul make it, if they had to run the ship aground, would Paul really make it to Rome safe at this point, like God said he would? So let's look at verse 33. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have, not, that you have continued in suspense and without food. And taking nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when the, and when he had said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in front and in the presence of all, he broke it, and they began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were two hundred and seventy-six persons in the ship. And when we had all eaten, they lightened the load by throwing the wheat into the sea. So Paul was at it again with this, not a hair on your head is going to be injured. And, and, the crew, and he convinces the crew to eat. He gives them encouragement. 
But then once they get their strength back, he t- they're given the, the sailors are given orders to throw the cargo overboard. I, I can only imagine what this maybe would make them think, feel like. Hey, we're about to be shipwrecked on an island. We don't know if there's any food there, but you want us to throw our only source of food overboard? Would we, sure, we make it to land safe, but are we going to starve once we get there? And if we starve, how's Paul going to make it to Rome? Let's look at verse 39. Now when day had come, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed that there was a bay with a beach, uh, with a, with a beach they had plan, planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, they, they uh, loosened the, the ropes on the rudders, and they hoist, off, hoist the uh, force sail to the wind, and they make for the beach. And so they're, they, they found a, a cove, and they're, they're going to make for the beach. Um, to this day, that this, this cove is known as uh, St. Paul's Bay. And so just in case you, you haven't you've lost track, let's tally things up really quick. So the, the cargo's gone, all the extra tackle on the ship's gone, the lifeboat's gone, the food's gone, they just cut away the anchors, so those are gone. They don't really know where they are. So there's no backing up and trying this again. This is their one and only chance. There's no second tries. And so the only thing left really is the people on the ship and the ship itself. So perhaps in the same way, you're circling uh, D.C. for what seems like forever, but eventually you get low on fuel. And so you're diverted to another airport, a small hole-in-the-wall airport no one's really heard of. And you make good time getting there. But as you start your approach, they, they, you find out that the landing gear won't lock down for some reason. But at this point, you're too low on fuel. You have to make an attempt to land. You might be thinking to yourself, what else could possibly go wrong? And perhaps Paul is thinking that same thing. Let's take a look at verse 41. But striking the reef, they ran the ship, the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And so before they get into the bay all the way, they, they hit a reef, and, and the ship becomes immovable. And, and, um, and, and because they're not far enough into the bay, the, the waves are still crashing against the back of the ship, and the ship is being broken up, just like Paul said that it was. And so I guess Paul was right about that. The ship was going to be lost at this point. But what about the people? Would they make it to land safe? Would Paul make it to Rome? Let's continue on in verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any would swim away and escape. So the soldiers, they knew that when they left Caesarea, that they signed for a certain number of people. And that when they got to uh, Rome, that they were expected to have that number of people. So for the sake of the argument, let's say they signed for 10 prisoners in, in Caesarea. When they got to Rome, they expected to have 10 prisoners. There wasn't really a, a roster of, okay, here's Paul, here's prisoner A, prisoner B. It was just more of a head count of, here's how many people you're expected to have. And so if they got to Rome and they only had nine prisoners, one of the soldiers would have to take the place of the missing prisoner. One of the soldiers would lose his life because the prisoner had escaped. So it probably makes perfect sense to them. I mean, 10 dead bodies are a lot easier to keep track of than 10 live bodies. So let's go ahead and kill them. But it leaves us asking the question, Paul's a prisoner. If they're going to kill the prisoners and Paul's a prisoner, how is he going to get to Rome to testify? Let's take a look. Verse 43. 
But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plans. He ordered those that could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest to take planks and pieces of the ship. Um, and, and, and so it was that all, all were brought safely to land. And so the centurion chooses to trust Paul one last time on the sea voyage. And he orders the, the soldiers not to, uh, to kill the prisoners and instead to jump overboard and swim to, to shore. And look at there in verse 44, it says, all of, the, uh, all of the people made it to shore safely. So everything had happened exactly as the angel had told Paul, exactly as Paul, as Paul had told them it would. So if that happened exactly that way, maybe God was going to keep his promise and Paul was going to make it to Rome. So perhaps in the same way, you know, you're on the plane, the landing gear won't lock down, but you have no choice. You have to try to land because you're low on fuel. And, and for a moment, you touch down, and for a moment, it appears like everything's going to be okay. The landing gear holds. But as you start to decelerate, the landing gear gives way, and the plane ends up skidding to a stop. But as you probably guessed, it, the emergency crews respond quickly. And everybody gets off the plane safely and makes it into the terminal. And so it happens exactly as you said it would. So maybe you too would make it to D.C. without any more trouble. Let's look back at Paul in 28 and verse 1. It says, after they were brought safely through, we learned that the island was, named, was called Malta. The natives showed us unusual kindness, and, and, uh, and, for their, and they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. In verse 3, when Paul, was, Paul, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put it on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. And when the native people saw this, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And so Paul, he was just being a servant leader, just like Jesus was. You know, when he tied, tied the robe around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, Paul was just uh, looking after the people. He, he, instead of staying near the fire and getting warm himself, he was going out and getting firewood. And perhaps in the same way, you know, you survive the plane crash, you're in the terminal, and the airport employees, or maybe they're trying to make you feel as comfortable as possible, and out of the, out of the corner of your eye, you spy a, a cart of blankets sitting there. And you think to yourself, kind of nice to have one of those. What would you do? Would you wait for uh, someone from the airport to bring you one? Would you just go get one and come back and sit down? Or I guess you could hand them out to other people because they probably want one just as bad as you do. So what would you do? Would you be the servant leader like Paul? And so Paul, you know, he's gathering firewood and, and, he, puts it in, and he puts it on the fire. And what does he get for his, his, his kindness? A deadly, poisonous viper bites him on a hand. And so it seems that the end has come for Paul. Vipers are poisonous, and, and they, they're viper, and they're, they're poison. Their poison uh, um, acts quickly. And I did extensive research. There were no hospitals on Malta this time that had antivenom. And it would only be a few minutes now. It would only be a few minutes now before, before he would be dead. And, and maybe uh, we look at that and we say, but, but, God, but God said he would testify in Rome. How can, how, can he, how can this happen to him? I mean, he survived the storm. He survived the, the soldier's plot to kill him. He survived the shipwreck. He survived the, sh the, the swim to shore, and now he's going to die from a snake bite? And so if you put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment, you're gathering sticks and you're bitten by a snake. 
a poisonous snake, what would you do? Would you cry out to God and say, God, why would you let this happen to me? Why are you making this so difficult? Or would you just sit down and give up and wait to die? Well, the Bible says Paul did neither of those. Let's take a look in verse 5. It says, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So Paul just shakes it off in the fire as if it's nothing and suffers no ill effect. Could you imagine yourself doing that? Can you imagine yourself trusting the Lord that much? That God said that he was going to go to Rome and that he was going to testify in Rome as he had back in Jerusalem. Would would you be able to trust God enough to say that that no storm was going to stop you, that that no uh, soldier's plot was going to stop you, that no swim to shore was going to stop you, and surely not a poisonous snake is going to stop you? And put your total and complete trust in God's sovereign plan. And just have a, God said it, it's going to happen, enough said attitude. So even in, when faced with a poisonous state, God is keeping his promise to Paul. And it looks like for the first time that maybe Paul really will make it to Rome, just as God had promised. And I'm going to leave you to read the rest of chapter 28 on your own. But just to conclude the story, I'll give you kind of the cliff notes version of kind of what happened for the rest of the story. They're invited to uh, come and stay with the chief official of Malta for, for three days. And while they're staying with them, uh, Paul learns that the, the, the chief official's father is sick. And so he asks to pray for him, and God heals him. And the word of, the, of his healing spreads throughout the entire island of Malta. And so people start coming to Paul to be healed. And while the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, I think it's, it's fairly safe to assume that from the rest of the book of Acts, that Paul is not just healing them and sending them on their way. I'm, I think it's fairly safe to assume that he's telling them about Jesus, that he is telling them about the salvation that they can have, and he's trying to plant an, a, a, a church there on Malta. There's a church tradition that... The, the literature from this time isn't that great, but there is a church tradition that about 100 years after this, that two missionaries come to Malta, expecting it to be just total, complete heathen, total, complete uh, barbarians, if you will, and they get there, and they find that there's Christians already there, and that there had been a complete and, uh, complete and total uh, Christian um, uh, line that stretched all the way back to Paul being on the island that continued forward for those hundred years until the second missionaries came. And so I wonder, if you had survived the plane crash, and the, the airline puts you up in a hotel, you get to the hotel and you find out the owner of the hotel's father is sick, what, what would you do? Would you just take the key and say, I'm too tired to worry about this, and, and, and go to your room? Would you take the key and say, hey, I'll pray for him before I go to bed, and maybe forget to do that? Or would you say, can I pray for him? Can I, can I see him? Can I pray for him and pray that the God might heal him? And if God does heal him and, and the word spreads throughout the whole hotel and people start coming to your door all night long, knocking on the door, asking you to pray for them also, what would you do? Would you roll over and ignore it because you're just tired? Or would you get up and pray for them also and share Jesus with them also that they might be saved? So they're, they're on the island for about three months, um, and then they're able to leave on another Alexandria ship. And the trip goes off without a hitch. In fact, in verse 13, there's some indications from the way it's worded that, the ship, that God's actually speeding them along their journey. And they get to a, a city named as Putili, which is, if you can see it on the map, is where the, the line changes from red to green. Um, and from, at that point, it's a land journey from there up to Rome. 
And so uh, they're, they, they're, they take the land journey to Rome, and as they're getting close, some of the Christians um, hear that, that Paul is, is getting close, and so they come out to meet him. And in verse 15, it says, um, On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And in the first part of 16, we see that Paul actually enters Rome. So God has been faithful to Paul. He has honored his, his, his agreement that he would send him and he would actually make it to Rome safely. So perhaps in the same way, you arrive back at the airport the next day and the storms pass, they book you on another flight and you get into D.C. in plenty of time for your court dates and you get off the plane. What's the first thing you're going to do? Is it going to be what Paul did and take time to thank God for getting you there safe? What would you do? And so Paul makes it to Rome. And, and, but when God first told Paul that he would testify in Rome, I doubt that he knew that it was going to be two and a half year journey in order to get there. He probably didn't think it was going to be as a prisoner. He probably didn't realize that he was going to have to come through a storm, that he was going to have to come through a shipwreck, that he was going to have to face a poisonous snake. But regardless, Paul made it to Rome just like God said he would in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. So if the worship team wants to go ahead and come back, I'm going to try to wrap up here real quick. So you might be saying to yourself, what's the point? I mean, Paul's story is an incredible one. The airplane story, eh, it's a little far-fetched. So what am I supposed to take away from this? Well, there's one thing I think I can say for sure, and that is since we all live in a fallen world, that we're all going to face storms in our lives. Yours might look different. Yours might not be life or death, but it'll be a storm just the same. Your storm might be that you lose a job. Your storm might be that you're not getting enough hours to pay your bills, or perhaps the opposite, and your boss is working you almost to death. But you're afraid that if you quit, you wouldn't be able to find another job. Maybe you're struggling with an illness. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction. Whatever it is, the important thing is how are you reacting to your storm? You see, God has a plan for you. He's a plan for you just like he has a plan for Paul. And Paul, time and time and time again throughout the storm, he put his trust in God's sovereignty. He put his trust in God's plan for his life to see him through the hardships. And you might say, that's great. So I'm supposed to trust God, but what does that look like? Well, I think Paul is a great example of this. You see, Paul, when he got told that they were going to make it through the, the, the shipwreck just fine, he didn't just sit back and wait for the storm to pass. Instead, he's active. He takes action. And instead, um, instead, of <clears throat> instead, he chooses others in the midst of the storm. He serves them by comforting them that they're going to make it through this, the, this, this similar, similar circumstance that he's going through. He serves them by stopping people from taking the cowardly way off the boats because it wasn't going to help anybody. He served them by encouraging them to take care of their basic needs and to eat food that they might have strength to continue the fights. And he served the others by collecting firewood so they could stay warm, not worry about himself keeping warm. And how was he able to serve others with such confidence because he put his trust in God's sovereign plan. So I would submit to you tonight that when storms come your way, we have to do the same. We have to put our trust in God's sovereign plan for us. 
We get to focus more uh, on God than we do on the storm. And in the midst of the storm, we should look for those that we can minister to that are going through similar circumstances and look to serve people. Because there's no greater testimony than serving God through the, through the, through the storms, through the tough times. And like Paul, when you're ministering to people, don't forget to tell them about Jesus. And if you do, God will honor your efforts. Now, it may not be exactly the same as Paul. You may not have a healing ministry in a random island. You may not have a fruitful ministry. You may not plant a church on an island that you only visit once. But God will honor your efforts just the same. And so tonight, let me ask you, are you in the middle of a storm? If so, take some comfort from Paul's words. He says to take courage. You're going to make it through the storm. And so tonight, I'd like to open the altars and and allow us to spend some time in prayer. Perhaps tonight, you're in the middle of a storm. Won't you come and spend some time in prayer and ask God to give you courage to make it through the storm? Ask Him if there's people that He wants you to serve while you're going through the storm. Others of us here tonight, maybe you just came through a storm. When Paul got to Rome, he thanked God for helping him get through. Have you taken time to thank God for helping you get through your last storm? If not, take some time tonight. Ask him, or pardon me, uh, thank him for helping you get through the storm. And ask him if there's other people going through related circumstances that maybe you can minister to them. And for everyone else here tonight, guess what? There's probably a storm brewing on the horizon. Why not start now asking God to give you courage to make it through the next one? And better yet, Ask him for wisdom, wisdom to stay in Fairhaven instead of going head on to the next storm. And so tonight, I'd like to open the altars or you can make an altar where you're at. But spend some time in prayer tonight. And Pastor CJ, I'll come back and close this out here in a few minutes.